Dialogic Disciple is an invitation to explore discipleship in dialogue with the world as disciples of the Word. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dialogic Disciple Podcast. My name is James Johnson and I am here with my co-host... Elizabeth Shaby. Elizabeth, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Fantastic. So we are here now at the final part of the series that we've been doing over the course of the last couple of months for the summer. We've been looking at the Beatitudes and looking at them as a seven-step process to becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. We have covered all of them, uh, the, all seven steps. So what you're saying is that we're disciples now. We have reached perfection. <laughs> Indeed, we have. I guess that's the idea. I'm concerned. <laughs> I'm concerned. I'm concerned about myself. <laughs> Maybe perfection isn't what you thought it is. Ooh. Ooh. So in any case, um, so we've been walking through this entire uh, entire process of, of what it means to become a disciple, looking at the Beatitudes as, as that process. Uh, step one, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Step two, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Step three, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Step four, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Step five, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Step six, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And then finally, step seven, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. That's seven. Seven is a is a, uh, a special number in the Bible, as you are probably aware. It's the number of completeness or wholeness. There were seven days of creation. It means that something has been completed. So we have completed the seven steps, and yet there's one beatitude left. So really there's eight steps. So that's the question, right? So today we're going to talk about this eighth beatitude and ask ourselves the question, James, you say this is a seven-step process. Why are there eight beatitudes? Well, yes, James, please tell us. Well, class, let me tell you. <laughs> this eighth beatitude kind of sticks out like a sore thumb, as I was telling my Sunday school class on Sunday. It sticks out as, a, as something that kind of responds to the completion of the seven. So it's like an eighth day of creation almost. But this, this final beatitude is not a step that we take. It's a response. It's something that happens to us because we have taken these steps. So the seven steps complete the process. What does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? It looks like being a peacemaker. But what does it look like to be a peacemaker in a world that is violent and fallen, sinful? It looks like being persecuted. And so the eighth beatitude is, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know that's the completion of what Jesus wants to say because he bookends it, right? The, remember the very first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Mm. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But he does add on an additional piece here to kind of break down what he means by this eighth beatitude. He says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There he kind of switches the tense, right? He doesn't say, blessed are those. He says, blessed are you, uh, as he kind of uh, unpacks what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in a world that is incredibly um, unpeaceful. So, 
today we're going to talk about this uh, final beatitude, the eighth beatitude, and the world's response to us as disciples of Jesus Christ. What is your, uh, what are some of your initial thoughts? We don't experience persecution a whole lot. Right. And that's a tough one for me because, yeah, we just don't. I think, you know, as Christians today in this world, we don't have a significant experience of persecution. Um, I'm generalizing, but yeah. I think on the whole, I mean, I don't really know what it's like to be persecuted. Right. So this is, um, this is a big deal. I think uh, something that should probably raise a red flag in. No, I just assume because we were doing it all correctly and everything was great. <laughs> right. And Bill mentioned this a little bit in his sermon on Sunday. Uh, when, when, and, and, and I think very helpfully, it, it's helpful to remember here that, that what Jesus is talking about here is real persecution. He is not talking metaphorically. He is not talking uh, in images or, uh, you know, in any other way other than saying that you will be persecuted. And that persecution, we, as we've read through the book of Acts, you know, during our Route 66 um, readings over the past couple of weeks, we can see clearly what that persecution looks like. And we can see clearly what it looks like for Jesus Christ, right? It looked like the cross. It looked like him being arrested and beaten and and illegally tried and then crucified, executed for what he was, for being faithful to the mission that God gave him. And we can see that in the lives of the disciples after him and in the lives of all of those really who come to see Jesus and come to believe in Jesus Christ in that early church. It reflects what we hear Jesus say when he says in John 15 that if the world hated me, they're going to hate you. It reflects uh, what we see in the more sim- in the in the simpler uh, process of becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. When Jesus says, "If anyone wants to come after me and be my disciple, they must take up their they must deny themselves, take up the cross, and follow me." So there is a level of even then Jesus is saying, "Like this is going to be hard. Uh, there's going to be there's a there is a not only is there a self denial that has to happen, not only is there a death to self." It has to happen first, but the response of those around you, maybe even of your own family, is going to be denial and persecution as well. So if we're not being persecuted, if we feel no persecution, what could that mean for us? Probably means we aren't doing mm-hmm. it right. Well, there... <laughs> This is a hard thing to talk about because we want to be honest about this. Uh, And we want to be as clear as we can be because there are levels of persecution. And there are ways in which people are persecuted, particularly around the world, Christians are persecuted. Um, But here in America, in the place where we grew up, up, in the place where we live, here in Atlanta, here in Buckhead, uh, I don't think we see the kind of persecution that Christ is talking about here in the Beatitudes. We don't see the kind of hatred that he talks about in the book of John. Um, In fact, we see kind of an acceptance. Do you think we can be persecuted by sin? Uh, Say more. You have talked before about, you're going to have to help me with the scripture reference, um, the one where I think God tells Cain, question mark, where his son is crouching at his door. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Okay, so you've you've brought up that imagery a lot to this idea that sin, uh, 
yeah, sin is, you know, it's personified here, right? It's as a you know, creature, whatever you want to call it, however you want to imagine it, crouching at your door, like waiting for you, right? It's always there. Right. And so I don't, do you think, maybe this is a totally different conversation. Maybe this is not at all what Jesus is talking about. Do you think uh, in our world right now as Christians who live, you know, in a pretty comfortable, fluffy environment, honestly, you know, like we right. don't see persecution. Do you think, what, what would it mean to think about it in the sense of being persecuted by sin? I think, um, I think that's a. I think that might be a really helpful way to think about it and talk about it. This actually came up a little bit in our Sunday school class, um, where we talked about the idea that once, particularly once you become a believer in Jesus Christ, once you're somebody who has made that commitment to becoming a peacemaker and becoming like Christ and following Jesus, there are there is an evil force in this world that is trying to hunt you down as as. God does say to Cain in Genesis chapter four, but also that we see laced throughout the entirety of scripture and in Jesus's own life, that he is being hunted by an evil force. And so I think that persecution, whatever form it takes, whether it's the Roman government or the United States government or it's sin or it's your family or whatever, is it that is part of the evil forces kind of uh, method of getting to you. Persecution is one of the ways in which we are hunted by the evil that's in the world. Sin, you can call it sin. Some people call it Satan or the devil uh, or demons or something like that. But what it is, is an active force that is trying to hunt us down. And once we get that scent of Jesus on us, right, that becomes, we become even more enticing for that. This is kind of, we talked about, we've, you and I have talked about the screw tape letters several times. Bill even mentioned the screw tape letters. Uh, in his sermon Fabulous on Sunday. Fabulous book. Yeah. That is honestly the book that really brought me to Jesus. And that's and, and, and that book is an imaginative kind of look at those evil forces or that evil force that is actively trying to trip us up or, and, and grab us. And one of the ways in which that happens is persecution. But I'm not sure that I would go so far as to say that we could be persecuted by sin. That's fair. You know, especially the way that Jesus is talking about it here. Yeah. You know, he's talking about it, and he gives us historical examples. He says, you know, the prophets themselves were, were you know, beaten up and, and were killed. You know? Yeah. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about physical persecution. He's talking right. about being silenced and being physically restrained or even murdered. So what do we do with this? You know, what, what do we do with this, right? If you're, you know, saying we can't think about this metaphorically, right? Jesus is talking about real, active, physical persecution, and we don't experience that. So yeah. what, what is the response as Christians today in Buckhead at Northside Church? How do we, how are we supposed to read this? What do I do with this? Well, there's a couple different ways to think about it. Um, there's probably more than a couple, but let me, <laughs> let me suggest a couple different ways that I reflect on it. One of the ways you could talk about it, and I think this is the way that most Christians do today, particularly in America, is to say, well, we live in an American, you know, we live, America is a Christian nation. And of course, we're not persecuted because most of us are Christians. And so why would we be persecuted by those around us if we're all part of the faith? And and you could also say that on top of that, you could say, well, maybe the world has become more tolerant. In, in the history of mankind, humankind, we have seen that people are on, a, on the highest levels. They, they are more tolerant. People are more tolerant today than they were in Jesus' time. Now, that doesn't mean that 
bad things don't happen. But for the most part, there is a trend of tolerance in human nature, uh, in human character, human relationships. And so you could say that. Uh, the other option, which I feel might be, unfortunately, the most truthful option, is that we simply are not being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we have a common, we have, a, we have made a commendation for the world in our lives, and we're kind of going hand in hand with the world rather than trying to be that, as Jesus is going to say, the very next thing that Jesus says in Sermon on rather than being the salt of the earth, rather than being the light, the hill, the city on the hill, we have become part of the world. Become sugar. <laughs> we are salt that's become sugar. That's not, that's not a bad, that's pretty good. Um, and instead, or, or at least we have eaten up the sugar of the world. Right, and we've become complacent mm -hmm. and not faithful. Um, I think a lot of us tend to believe, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody else, that that our faith is a private matter, our religion is a personal situation, a personal choice, and that we have, you know, we've been told not to bother other people with that faith, and we've, you know, do we? Are we people? At the end of the day, this is what it really boils down to, I think, is can we look at ourselves honestly, whether we do it as individuals or as a church, because I do think that Jesus is talking about the whole church here. He's not talking about simply individual Christians. Can we say that we are people who have become poor in self, that have grieved and mourned the life that we have left behind? Are we truly people who are meek? Right. This is something that I've. This is something that we all struggle with. Can we honestly say that we are meek? That we are people who don't get offended, right? Can we say that we truly hunger and thirst for righteousness? Can we say that we truly show mercy? That that's our form of justice in the world. That we are merciful, and can we finally can we say that we're pure in heart? That that is to say, can we say that our will and our heart and our lives are directed at exactly one thing and one thing alone, which is the kingdom of God? Can any of us say that? And if we can't say any of that, then we surely can't say that we're peacemakers. And if we can't say that, then of course we're not being persecuted because we're not doing the things that lead to the persecution that Jesus is talking about. Uh, to be very clear, Jesus is not looking for martyrs. He's not looking for people to, that, that seek out persecution and seek out violence upon them. He, what he wants is people who are going to walk like he did, which is to, just to be faithful. And the world will see that and the world will respond to that because number one, you've exposed the world, you know, a church that is truly faithful in the way that Jesus has laid out here in the Beatitudes, a church that truly has been transformed into peacemakers will expose the world for how violent and sinful it is, right? Just as much as we are ourselves, right? We will become a mirror that's put up to the world and the world will reject that image that it sees, you know, out of, out of frustration, out of guilt, out of condescension, I don't know, out of a lot of different things, like the same way they did with Jesus. I mean, what was Jesus's actual crime? Why did Jesus get persecuted, right? It wasn't, he wasn't, he, typically, you know, he spoke truth to power a few times, but he never did anything uh, that, that would warrant, like, we have to get rid of this guy, except for that he threatened power structures. Strong, yeah, threatening power structures, that's a... He threatened power structures. He, he, he truly treated everyone as though they were valuable creations of God. This, I mean, it really goes back to 
this concept of the church that we always bring up and talk about, um, setting up, setting up the church, the structure of the church and the community of the church in such a way that it actually becomes threatening to the status quo. And I say, so here's the thing though. And I, I, I think that's exactly right. And we're going to, we're going to dive deep into this in the class that we're going to do this fall, the politics of Jesus, which will happen on Tuesday night, starting in September. Um, but it, it's not about, it's not about trying to offend the world. It's not about trying to purposely set up structures that, that go against the flow of the world. All we are called to do is be faithful to what Christ has laid out for us in the gospel, right? And what we see here in scripture, throughout all of scripture from Genesis through Revelation. And that's what we see in Revelation as well. You want to talk about persecution, go read the book of Revelation. That's where real persecution uh, is laid out and what that looks like. Um, but but if Jesus' claim here, as it was in John chapter 15 and it is in other places, is that if you are truly faithful to what I am asking you to do, which is to leave everything and to follow me, to truly have a purity of heart that directs only toward the kingdom of God, which means also, by the way, family is second, uh, church family is second, that your job, your career, what you think is important in life, your hobbies, your football teams, right? All of that is not just secondary, but way, way, way in the back, if if not forgotten altogether in this kind of pursuit of the kingdom of God. Now, this is something that we can't do by ourselves, right? And so I, I want to keep reiterating this, and I've said this many times, but I want to keep saying it because it's important that this is not something Jesus is saying, is calling out for simple, uh, simply individuals to do. He's saying this to a group of disciples that they have to do this together as a church, as a group of disciples. And it has to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. It can't be. This is how Jesus himself does it. He does everything he does through the Holy Spirit. And so it ha- we have to do the same thing. We have to follow. We have to go through this transformation from poor in spirit all the way to peacemaker through the Holy Spirit. This is something that God does to us more less than it is something that we do ourselves. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I wonder if a helpful way to think about it would be the world's response, reaction to us individually, but as a church, that is that becomes the gauge, right? Like you said, we're not trying to intentionally be different, but it's that you will be different if you do all these things, if you go through this process. And so the focus is, you know, the being meek, being hungry, all these things, right? The focus is that that's where the, that's the goal. If the result is not, if we notice that our result, because I can sit here and think to myself, well, I'm being faithful. You know, I'm, I thought I was pretty meek today, you know, like X, Y, Z and all those things. So maybe that's a good way. It's looking at, the world's response as a gauge. Well, you know, if you didn't, you know, if the world didn't look at you like, oh, wow, something's different there. Or, oh, gosh, like, no, that's not, I'm, you know, that's yeah. not going to work. No, then, that's right. then we have to maybe reevaluate and rethink. Maybe that's that's a good, uh, using using the world's response to us as a, as a gauge, just to try to figure out whether or not we're still part of the world itself. This is one of the things, again, we'll talk about this semester or this in the coming months as we head toward yet another very polarizing political season. 
um, here in the United States. But uh, what we do here on Sunday mornings is is proclaim that Jesus Christ is King, that He is Lord of all. It's something that should scare the governments of the world. It's something that should scare the United States government, that we are proclaiming that our ultimate allegiance is not to the Constitution of the United States or the President of the United States, that our ultimate allegiance truly, truly, truly is to Jesus Christ, the King and Lord of all. And we're proclaiming that every Sunday morning when we stand up and we sing the songs that we sing, and we do the Lord's Prayer and we do the, the, the Apostles' Creed, and yet our government is so unafraid of us and so unconcerned with us that they even give us tax credits and say, we won't have to pay taxes like everybody else does. Like, that's how unconcerned they are. They, we have been inoculated, you know? We have, been, we have been lulled to sleep or maybe just fattened on sugar, right? So that we are no longer, we are no longer the salt. And there is no light. And it's not enough just to sing songs on Sunday morning. It's not enough just to be a good guy or a good woman. It's not, it's, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I don't know. Like, it, I feel like if we, were, if we were being the church in the way that we were called to be the church, in other words, to be ultimately to be these, these peacemakers that Jesus is talking about. So, and, and the meek part is an, an essential part that I, I see a lack in myself uh, and I see a lack in, in most Christians that I meet. If we were truly being this, I think there would be more of a response than here's your tax credit. Thanks for thanks for bringing value and morality to America, right? I don't because that's what I think we've become. I mean, I can sit here and say, well, you know, James, I you know, I hear what you're saying, and you know, that makes sense. But hey, we just you know, we just spent a whole week at Map you know, sweating and hammering and fixing things for people. And, you know, we got guys down there in the scout hut in the old kitchen right now, guys guys and ladies, um, packing food that's going to go off to Food Security for America. Yeah. And, um, you know, Nancy Arnell's doing an amazing thing with that program and helping people learn how to be sustainable. And, you know, like so, you know, and we've got folks that meet in the prayer chapel that are praying for our world. And, you know, right, so... What? So the, what? What do I do with that? You know, like we're not. This is not bad. These are, these are, are not good. Bad we're doing what all. Jesus asked us to That's do. That's exactly or, right. But what are what are those folks doing when they're not doing that? What am I doing when I'm not doing that? I mean, you and I, we both get paid to be at the church. <laughs> we are, uh, for all intents and purposes, professional Christians. Yeah. We uh, we have, uh, in, in a very real sense, given our lives at least our professional lives, over to the church. And yet, I can't look at my life and say that the entirety of my will is directed only and solely at God. And that's the point. Like, it's great. Like, I am not in any way, I am not in any way taking away from the work and the prayer and the things that we do as a church, as our church does. And we, we, we are, uh, we truly are, I think, a light in the community. I, I do think that. But what are we doing when we're not doing that? What is it that we are actually passionate about? What are the things that drive us to get out of the bed in the morning? You know? That what are the things that make us so tired that we have to go to sleep at night? And we, I think that a lot of times that we get so wrapped up in the concerns and the the distractions of our lives that we lose that that drive 
that would truly make us, <laughs> would make us a threat to the world. You know, we have been, we have, we have got to this place where we have compartmentalized our time so that we give a certain amount of time, a certain amount of resources, a certain amount of money to the church, and we think that we've checked that box and we're good to go. But read the book of Acts and tell me, are these, are these guys doing that? Is, is, is Peter and Paul, and, and I know maybe it's not fair to, to point back, but this is, these are our guys. These are our models. These are who we're supposed to be like. Right? These are not, Peter and Paul are not God. They are simply men who are doing what Jesus told them to do. So men and women today, you know, when we look at Peter and Paul, do we see people who are, who are like, well, I, I put in my eight hours of Jesus time today, you know, or I put in my one hour of mission time today. Uh, I'm going to go and, you know, uh, go fishing down the Sea of Galilee, right? We see people, they're living their lives, but every aspect of the life that they live is, is reflecting and, and casting the light of God into the world. And, it's there. There's no downtime. There's this great gospel song, and I don't remember who wrote it, but um, the lyrics say, "I keep so busy praising my Jesus, I ain't got time to die. <laughs> keep so busy serving my Master, I ain't yeah. got time to die." And I love that. And I like that. That's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Like I, I'm so busy doing the work that God has called me to do. I'm so busy being faithful that I don't even have time to die. Like, I don't have to, time to do mm-hmm. anything else. Right. You know, like I am going to run out of time here on this earth before I feel like I've done everything God needs me to do. Yeah. And that's the urgency I think that you're talking about. So the, that's not the, we can do it tomorrow. We can do it next week. We'll get to it. It's because we do, we have plenty of these things in our lives that are, Oh, I got to do that right now. I get anxious about all kinds of ridiculous things on a everyday basis, you know, yeah. like this has got to get done. That's got to get done. But what if we had that sort of urgency for the things we were doing for God? Like, I, I think that's the word right there, urgency, because that's what we're lacking. We don't have any urgency, you know, in the way that Peter and Paul lived their lives, the way that the early church lived their life, there was this kind of what we call eschatological urgency, right? They had this, uh, this expectation that Jesus was coming back soon. And that they had to get the work done before Jesus, right? You know, and we've lost that because it's been 20 centuries. It's been 2,000 years, right? It's two yeah. millennia later and Jesus hasn't come back. And we think that gives us an excuse or maybe that's the reason why we have just been lulled to sleep to the point where we're no longer being, we no longer take the gospel as an urgency. It's not something that's urgent in our lives. And we've lost that we have lost that passion that the early church had. And so, of course, we've also lost, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't say lost, but, you know, of course we're not being persecuted because we're not really in anyone's way. We're not really saying anything that people, you know, should be upset about. You know, the reason why the Christians were persecuted in, in, um, in the book of Acts, in the early church, was not because they were simply saying that Jesus was Lord. It was because they were living their lives in such a way that, that proclaimed Jesus was Lord. What does that look like for us today? You know, and, and so, so Rome is threatened by the early church, You're right? Most of the Christians who get killed in the early church aren't killed by Jewish people. They aren't killed by other religions. They're killed by Rome being threatened by the seditious message of 
Jesus is actually the king and is actually the Lord. And I'm going to live my life based on what he says and not based on what you say. We live in a different time. And obviously, the uh, United States of America is not Rome. Here, here's what I know is that, is that the United States is not a Christian government. This country was not founded as a Christian nation and very intentionally founded in such a way as to keep religion out of it. And so this government, the world that we live in is still the world. And Jesus was describing to us what happens when you live faithfully in the world. And until Jesus Christ comes back, this is the case that the world will reject you if you live faithfully like Jesus Christ did. So if we are not being persecuted, if we're not being rejected, if we seem to be in a very comfortable spot uh, as Christians, wherever we are in the world, wherever we are in the world, then we have to take a step back and rethink what we're doing. If only to ask the question and say, am I being faithful? And if it turns out that we are, and if it turns out we're doing everything we're supposed to be doing the way we're supposed to be doing, and we're not being persecuted, then holy be the second coming must be soon. But, but if we're honest with ourselves, and if we go down this list, like you could just go down this list right here, that's right here in the scripture. Just use this as your checklist if you want a checklist. Am I these things? Yeah. I don't think we are. I know that I'm not at the end of the day. So that's, that's where I have to lay the burden is on myself is that I'm not this. So why am I not persecuted? Because I'm not faithful. And if I'm not faithful, then I might feel good about what I'm doing on a religious basis. I might feel good about the little time that I put in to serve the Lord. And it might make me feel better, but it, it is not helping to bring about the kingdom of God. Now, God can use even the little bit that I give, uh, and God can use anything. God can do whatever God wants, but we have a call as a church to help build the kingdom. And when we don't do it with a full and pure heart, seeking first the kingdom of God, I mean, we're taking a lot of players off the field for God. There's another song lyric that comes to mind. Um, I think it's a, like a bluegrass song that I like. And it says something to the effect of um, Jesus is coming, um, but he's walking. He sure ain't running, but who can blame him? Look how we done him. And, <laughs> you know, and this just reminds me of what you were talking about, right? Like, because there's that level of, you know, frustration. <laughs> like, you said you were coming back and where the heck are you, dude? You know, exactly. and it's hard to have that urgency um it, it it it's difficult in a small way to have that kind of urgency um but i think it's essential that we find it and figure out how to have it um there's a movie you're quoting quoting great song lyrics let me quote a movie there's a great movie uh, you will have seen but it's called Fiddle dreams and it's it's about you know this guy who hears a voice in his cornfield and it tells him to basically build a baseball diamond there in his cornfield, which is a ridiculous and, and crazy thing to do. But part of uh, the what, what the voice says is, if you build it, he will come. And I've always taken that to be a metaphor for exactly the same kind of thing that we're supposed to be doing as the church. That if we build the kingdom, the, the king will come. That's beautiful. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. And if you look at the movie, like he builds the... He builds the uh, he builds the baseball field, and what happens to him? Like, he is rejected by the bank. He's made fun of at the feed store. You know, he is persecuted in a way that he almost loses his family 
because of it. He almost loses his farm because people think he's crazy, right? Now that's that's the kind of that's a metaphorical way of looking at. Obviously, we're not talking about building a baseball diamond, but if we're truly, truly risking everything to build the kingdom, like we have been instructed and called to do by God, I think we do get some pushback, and I think that does tell us that we're maybe on the right path. Yeah, it has occurs to me that everything in our lives wants to be first. Everything wants to be our first priority, right? You know, you get people coming at you all day long that need something, they need it now. Yeah. You know, um, our technology is designed to capture our attention, you know, um, and it wants to be the first thing. Our family, you know, asks to be first, you know, Absolutely. our children, our significant others, like all these things in our lives are constantly asking to be first. And Including we, ourselves. we, oh yeah, right. Our own brains, ourselves. our right. brains, our emotions, our thoughts, everything, our desires. And it's, we have to constantly say, no, God is first. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Yeah. Other things be taken care of. That's very easy to say and very hard to do, but maybe we can help each other do it. Seek and build, right? Yeah. That's what you're talking about. Seek the kingdom of God. And by seeking, it requires a doing. So like you, you know, again, if you build it, he will come. If you build it, he will come. I honestly believe this is why Christ hasn't come back yet because yet there's we haven't done the work that he has asked us to do to prepare for him. In the sense that, you know, what does John the Baptist do for Jesus? He says, uh, I'm the voice calling out in the desert, preparing the way for the Lord. This is what the church's job does now. John the Baptist is the church, except for now it's us that's preparing the way for the Lord. And we just haven't done it. And we haven't been faithful. And we've lost the urgency, as we talked about. And and so we haven't built the kingdom. Because a lot of us now believe that it's not our job to build the kingdom. It's just our job to invite Jesus into our heart and pray and go to church on Sunday maybe and do a little bit of mission work here and there and pay our tithes and that's it. We're not actually trying to build the kingdom of God here on earth. We're not trying to do that because we don't think it's possible, because we don't think it's what we're supposed to do. But it is clearly what Jesus has asked us to do. It's clearly what the church in Acts is doing. And it's something that we have completely lost a vision for. That's really it. We don't have the vision anymore. And so maybe returning to that that returning to that vision, returning to that call, listening for that voice and, and, and acknowledging that it's the Holy Spirit that's going to do it through us. Like, like we could do anything, right? All about how the Holy Spirit works. So what, what I'm talking about in the sense of if we build it, he will come. What does that kingdom look like? What is, I mean, what is it, what is the vision that we're supposed to be? What is that vision that is supposed to be guiding us? I always go back to this passage this is in Isaiah chapter 2. Um, and, and anyone who's ever been in a Bible study with me has heard this passage because I try to fit it into everything. But this is exactly the this is exactly the vision that I think we're supposed to have in front of us, the one that Jesus Christ himself had in front of him when he says, after we become peacemakers, we are the salt of the earth and the light uh, of the world, and that we are the city on the hill. This is what Isaiah chapter 2 says. It says, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and the temple of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways so that we can walk in his paths. 
the law, the word will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and he will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, but they will never, they will not train for war anymore. Come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I think when Jesus is talking about, when he is, Jesus gives this sermon on the mount. He goes to the top of this, this hill, this mountain, begins to proclaim the word. The word comes down from the mountain, from the word of God himself. And the end result of that is that we become peacemakers. And that's exactly what we see here in Isaiah chapter 2, is that the, the result of God speaking and the result of people listening to God is that nation no longer takes up sword against nation. They beat their swords and the plowshares and peace Peace, political peace, national peace, international peace, personal peace, all forms of peace. Peace is the result. And the call that Isaiah gives here, come descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's a call that Jesus Christ himself is saying, you are the light of the world. That's the vision. That's what we are called to head toward, to build. God is always looking for partners. Adam and Eve were supposed to be partners in creation. God's always looking for someone to help him do what he's supposed to be doing. Not because he wants the help, but because he wants the relationship. I think, I mean, I think that's, I think that's it. Well, Elizabeth, thank you so much. I think we're going to end the conversation there today. Um, we will have another episode next week. I'm not sure what we're going to talk about next week, but uh, I'm sure we can find we'll something. find something. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation from the very beginning and through today. Thank everyone who's listened and paid attention and, and been a part of the conversation. We hope that you guys will continue to, to tune in and listen. And uh, if you have topics or things that you want us to talk about, please shoot us an email. Give us some feedback. If you're interested in coming on the Dialogic Disciple podcast, we love to have guests. So love to hear from you guys. Um, you guys uh, take care. We'll see you next week. Peace.